Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this amazing privilege to gather together as family to break bread, the very bread of life, the Word of God, to dine on it together, to enjoy it for as long as it's called today. Let us encourage each other while doing so. Let us encourage each other to, to gather together not forsake assembling together, Father. Encourage us this way. and We're so very grateful and thankful for a place to come to, like North Christian Church. We know it's not the building, it's the people. But nonetheless, Father, we're so very grateful for all aspects of your grace in our lives, including this beautiful church on a hill that affords us the peace and quiet to be able to gather together and do this very thing that just matters so much in life. And thank you for bringing us together as a family in the unity of faith so that we can be refreshed, washed by the word, so that we are to go out afterwards and fulfill this great commission that your son gave to us. Just another privilege and reason why you've kept us alive even after salvation. May we keep our perspective straight and may we share it with everyone we run into, regardless of where we come from, where we're going, who our family is, who our friends are, where we work. Let us be equally encouraged in doing this thing. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for the reason and the ability to be able to do these things, which is the cross where you sent your Son, our Lord and Savior, to die in our stead. May we never become familiar with it, but rather be so very encouraged by your grace and your love. We do just ask your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. No slides coming through. Do we have sound? Just go with it. We'll just work out the slides later. Slides are secondary. As long as we have sound. With that said, another another dynamic day in the life and times of North Christian Church. I told you, we're under all, I've shared this, um, it's probably an appropriate time, I shared this with my leadership team last week. Uh, the number and the creativity of attacks that we're under as a congregation, uh, and the, I would say, the amplitude and the frequency, not to be nerdy, but the amplitude and the frequency of the attacks is just on the up, ever since the gospel reload. Surprise, surprise. You get people straight on the gospel. You get people jazzed up about spreading the gospel. What do you expect from the God of this world? What do you expect in terms of opposition from the kingdom of darkness? This is exactly what you would expect, and this is exactly proof that we're doing the right thing, that we're bringing out the very sustenance of life itself and Satan hates us. So just keep that in mind. Go to John 10.1 as we 
trudge on through John 10, verse 1. It's incredible the kinds and the nature of the attacks that I'm seeing as your shepherd um, here at the church, even beyond these four walls. It's incredible. So just keep the church and uh, everyone in the church in prayer because if you've stuck around and you've partook in this gospel reload or you're just starting to partake in it now, just get used to it. You're going to be under attack and you've got to take it in stride because what he wants us to do is quit and I refuse for one. So start with that when you imitate my faith. John 10.1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand. And this has been a bit of our encouragement as of late. They did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. And these are the, his disciples, his apostles specifically, who we've been studying. So I think to start off this morning, one of the most encouraging things a person can hear is that others are struggling with the same issues they are. That's an encouraging thing for all of us to hear that, frankly, you know, and before I get any further into that, I say this with the utmost desire for the well-being of others. It's not that we're encouraged or, you know, rejoicing that someone else is struggling in a certain way. But we can be encouraged knowing that others are struggling in the same way. So it's not that I'm, you know, I say, I say this with the utmost desire of, for the well-being of others. It's just that knowing we're not alone in our struggles helps. Is that, is that fair to say? Just knowing that we're not alone helps. And this is why the Bible commands us to come together as brothers and sisters. That's why at the start of class I always look out. Who's here? Who are my brothers and sisters? Who's here? As the Bible says and commands us to gather together not to forsake gathering together. So this is why the Bible commands us to come together as brothers and sisters, and the visual is that we come together at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've read in Scripture, both figuratively and literally, go to Mark 3.28, Mark 3.28, There are multiple scenes captured in the Bible where Jesus' disciples would have been at his feet, so to speak, as he would sit on a hill and speak to uh, his disciples. They would have been sort of seated at his feet, literally and figuratively. Uh, Mark 3.28, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit 
never has forgiveness, but is guilty <coughs> excuse me, of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers, so that just gives us some context of the gravity of what was going on at that point. Then his mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Now listen up, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's Jesus Christ. Up here on the board, those who were sitting around him, Jesus considered his true disciples, his brothers, sisters, and mother. Mark 3.35 We ought to embrace this scene as our own. For if we were somehow transported back to that moment in time, he'd have looked into our eyes and said the same thing. We're, we would be his brothers and sisters and mother. Those who were sitting around him, Jesus considered his true disciples his brothers, sisters, and mother. We ought to embrace the scene as our own. For if we were somehow transported back to that moment in time, he'd have looked into our eyes and said the same thing. By the way, he would have simultaneously known full well that like the apostles, we don't understand everything about him or his blessed ministry. We don't. And that's part of this encouragement that the apostles present to us. We just read that. They didn't understand everything. He talked about sheep and shepherd and such. And they said, we don't understand. And he knew they didn't understand. But that never halted his ministry. That never halted him training them up, continuing to push them out, to, to test their own faith even. So while he would say the same things to us, he would know full well that we don't understand. Nobody here, including myself, understands everything. That's why we come together and learn the Word of God. We don't understand everything about the Word of God especially not the first time through, and that's okay. And that should be encouraging. Not knowing everything about the Lord Jesus Christ is no cause for anxiety, especially not in the greatest sense, that is, regarding your salvation. If you're saved, there's nothing that can get between the Lord and you, which is really His family. Up here on the board, Romans 8, 38 and 39 in the message reads, I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. Nothing can get between one of His own and Him. So you shouldn't have, just because you might not know everything about him or understand everything that he said, don't ever be insecure about your relationship with him. And that's what another thing that was encouraging with the apostles. So the, what's the problem with we believers then? I mean, why isn't it that simple? Why can't we just 
you know, understand such things? The answer is obvious. And why don't we just embrace such things like that which is on the board? We have a flesh that is infinitely more attracted. Listen, the flesh is infinitely more attracted to the things of this world than it is of the things from above. Let me say that again. There's a reason why it's not that simple. It's because everyone in here has a flesh, and the flesh is infinitely more attracted to the things of this world than it is of the things from above. While Holy Scripture says one thing, our flesh says something diametrically opposed. Go to Colossians 3.1. Colossians 3.1. This is what Scripture says we ought to focus on. This is what, obviously, Jesus wants us to focus on what he wanted his apostles to focus on, what he wanted his apostles to teach the early church, other disciples to focus on. But it just doesn't seem that easy. Why? Because of our flesh. Colossians 3.1 Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, in other words, if you're a believer, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Man, why is it not so easy? Seems so easy, doesn't it? You read the scripture on a Sunday morning, you're like, oh, this is, makes total sense to me. What's my problem then? Then why are the vast majority you going to, before the end of this day, be somehow ingrained again in the world system? The aforementioned problem with believers failing to live in the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ is what can best be described, at least in part, as diversion. Diversion. Up here on the board. It's a military, it has a military connotation to it. Diversion, in the military sense, is a military deception designed to draw enemy strength away from a primary target. Military deception designed to draw enemy strength away from a primary target. Well, guess who you are to Satan? You're his enemy. Satan is a military genius. Read Ephesians 6 later on on your own. Concentrate. This is the real point the Spirit's getting at this morning. On this idea of diversion that you're Satan's enemy, that he wants you, he wants to divert uh, your attention from his primary target, which is, guess who? Jesus Christ. Since Satan has no real power over us, as believers at least, we must give it to him by means of our own free will. Imagine that. Do you mean the reason it's not so simple is because of us? Yep. That sounds self-destructive. It actually is. But that's us. Thank God for God's mercy, right? Thank God for His patience, right? Thank God for His grace. Since Satan has no real power over us, we must give it to him by means of our own free will. 
Do yourselves a big favor and repeat that as often as possible to yourselves over the course of today. Since Satan has no real power over us, we must give it to him by means of our own free will. Repeat that to yourself. Consider it another challenge. I know some of you are like, oh, I didn't even do the first one, so there. <laughs> oh, you're such a rebellious little adolescent. You're just so cool. I bet you you probably smoke outside over there too. No offense to smokers, but you know what I'm saying. Behind the rock and you spray paint the rock and all that good stuff. And you get your bandana on, you know what I'm saying? He's such a rebel. James Dean. Just consider it another challenge, like the last one that some of you chose to take. Let me put it up here on the board for your eye gate. Just some perspective to think about. Since Satan has no real power over us, we must give it to him by means of our own free will in order for him to have any real influence over us. Remember I put uh, Bumby, the abominable snowman, remember when they, nobody he plucked all his teeth out and he's like, he was just big scary, but he didn't do anything. It's like that. He's just a shadow. He's got no real power over you anymore. You have to afford him that power. You have to give him the space. That's why it says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Do not give the devil the opportunity. That's scripture. So you actually have the ability to not be diverted. And as soon as you just turn your attention towards Christ, he has no more power over you. But if you turn your attention away from Christ because of some lustful temptation, something that Satan in the kingdom of darkness is holding out like a little carrot, they have power over you now. You've lost your power, so to speak. Your power source is with Christ and the spirit of Christ. So if you're off on the weekends getting drunk, which is dissipation, and your attention is now diverted, you've kind of lost your power system, so to speak, at least in the moment. You understand? And now you've given Satan some degree of power in your life that he has no right over because you've already, if you're saved, been delivered from the sovereignty, the dominion of sin. Sin no longer reigns over you. That's scripture. So it's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? That the reason it's not simple is ourselves. The reason why Satan in the kingdom of darkness has any influence over us whatsoever is because of ourselves. But we afford it to him. We give it to him. Huh. So since Satan has no real power over us, we must give it to him by means of our own free will in order to, for him to have any real influence over us. And guess what? We do it often. There's one upside that the Spirit brought out on Thursday, and it has to do with how we learn and the fact that God has ordained even our failures. We all can agree that we fail in this area miserably. We give power where power isn't due. We let the kingdom of darkness have influence over us. We all agree to that, I'm sure. If you don't, you, I don't know what to think about you. But here's the thing. Put it in perspective. God has ordained every one of your failures. Some of you are like, oh, but I failed big. Yeah, I know. Or maybe I don't know, and I don't really care, honestly, and nobody else should care. We've all failed. We've all failed big at some point. And guess what? God has ordained it for you. Maybe he had something to prove to you. Maybe, maybe he had to prove to you that you really are a jackass. Happy Sunday morning, everyone. Well, I don't know what he had to prove to you. Up here on the board, 
But here's what came out on Thursday. The good thing is that Satan's system always ends in want. And its very failure brings some people searching for the Lord and his simple truths. That's right. God has ordained failures in your life. At least in part to that. For that. There's a good side, in other words, to failure. What does a righteous man do if he falls seven times? He gets up seven times. So says Scripture. That's what he's looking for. Who's glorified every one of those seven times you get up? The Lord is. By how? By grace. I am what I am by the grace of God. You'd never get up if it wasn't for God's grace. Not even once. So the good thing is, and this is a perspective issue, is that God ordains us in our failures, ordains our failures. And He can make the most of it by grace. It's funny because, though I normally teach on Thursdays, last week's the snow day, and Scott had already prepared for uh, his lesson on Tuesday, and then we called church, and I asked him, I said, do you, wanna, do you have something specifically you want to say? Because I'll just trudge on, and you know, your lesson will sort of just go to the wayside. And he said, no, I'd like to teach, because I'd like to say a few things. And so I gave him Thursday evening. It was really his choice. But it was interesting, because on Friday morning, the Spirit had me preparing this lesson, I usually do it on Saturday. But on Friday, he had me doing it. Uh, and before I began preparing the lesson, I had sat down in my recliner near the window with my morning coffee and continued reading the Gospel of John. That's where I'm at right now. And what kept popping out to me were John's allusions to life and death, light and darkness, etc., etc. But mostly this life and death contrast, it just kept coming out of Scripture. I was in John 8 through 10-ish. And also that sin is tantamount to death. That sin and death are this way. Do you understand? Sin and death are like this. You can't say they're the exact same thing. But for this morning's discussion, let's consider them literally the same ball of wax. That's sin and death. You understand? And John really highlighted this in his teaching. So sin is tantamount to death. In other words, I don't want to oversimplify, but sin is death. Do you understand? Sin is death, biblically speaking, or maybe better articulated as the agent of death. All strict theology aside, because I don't want to get anybody all up in arms, for all intents and purposes, sin and death are, loosely speaking, interchangeable, at least in this morning's discussion. In other words, I want you to think about death. As soon as you think about sin in your life, I want you to think about death. And when you think about death, I want you to think about sin. One does not exist in the absence of the other, if that makes sense. Go to James 1.15. James 1.15. So as I was sitting there drinking my coffee, before I even looked at Thursday evening's lesson, uh, I was just sort of reading through the Gospel of John. And this sin and death and life and death argument kept coming up uh, as being emphasized in my soul. James 1.15 
Again, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, guess what it does? It brings forth death. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Go to Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. So while we can't say that sin is death and death is sin, strictly speaking, otherwise it'd be the same word in the Bible, they're they're intrinsically bound to one another. Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and what? Death through sin. You see the agency of sin, in other words. Death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. How about verse 21 in that chapter? Verse 21, 5.21 So that as sin reigned in death, Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see sin reigning in death. Hopefully you see what the Spirit's trying to bring out here. So, of course, if sin reigns in death, then righteousness in Christ reigns in what we would call life. Go to Romans 6.10. Romans 6.10. For... The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. How about Romans 8.2? Romans 8.2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. This is what John was getting at. Life and death, sin versus righteousness. I guess what the Spirit was showing me, and now you, while I was sitting there in my recliner, is something that Jesus taught his disciples to teach others in the early church, like James and Paul, as we just read. What the Spirit was showing me over my coffee on Friday morning was the following, up here on the board. Perspective on sin and death. When we think of sin, we must immediately think of death. That's a very good exercise. Because a lot of people, I think, I do it myself, you just say, ah, I just do this one little thing right here. Not thinking that I'm sowing, think about that. Sin is the agency, if you would. I'm literally sowing death in my life. Does that make sense? That's what happens when you sin. You're sowing death in your life, not light in life, death. That's what sin is. So when we think of sin, we must immediately think of death. And we're talking about spiritual death here, right? You're not going to sin and die. There is a sin, though, that leads to that, but whatever. We're talking about our experience in life, even. When we think of sin, we must immediately think of death. There's nothing good, in other words, in death, in spiritual death. Spiritual death, by definition, theologically means separation from God. So there's nothing good that's going to come out of sowing such a thing in your life. Does that sound right? And that's how you should think about it when you're about to sin. I'm about to sow death in my life. 
I'm about to sow something horrific in my life. Death. There's no peace in death. Not spiritual death. Think of the ultimate separation from God, the lake of fire, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's one way to think about death, because that's exactly what it is. So if you want to move towards that when you sin, that's what you're doing experientially when you sin. You're moving towards death because sin is the agency for death. So when we think of sin, we must immediately think of death. When we think of death, we must think of where we came from prior even to our salvation. There is nothing more destitute and hopeless than spiritual death. So in other words, if you want to experientially, I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but if you want to start experiencing hopelessness again, lack of peace, emotions of destitution even, go sin your butt off. No, better yet, go live in sin like some of you are. Go live in sin. Try that on for size. And see what happens in your life. You want to sow those things in your life? Go do it. I don't suggest you do it, but maybe that's the kind of failure that I was talking about earlier, that God might ordain in your life because you're such a stubborn jackass. And you're like, I don't care what Scripture says, this is for me. Well, good luck with that because you're literally sowing death in your life. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. Didn't, didn't we just say that? Didn't you say that? Lust gives birth to sin and sin sows death. I didn't say that. That's not me being all condemning on a Sunday morning. That's me trying to protect you from yourself. That's why life isn't so simple. It's because you keep on sinning the same way and sowing death in your life. Experientially. Hmm. The sin that's been our topic of discussion as of late is diversion. It starts there. In other words, choosing to fall for the temptations of the world. And this is something that gelled for me as I read through Thursday's lesson. So if you weren't able to be here, and again, I apologize, it wasn't recorded, um, then allow me to reiterate something that came up on Thursday. Perspective on sin and death. Be set free from the search for things that lead to death. Awesome. Be set free from the search for things that lead to death. The money, the relationships, the possessions, illegitimate sex, these things lead to death because sin gives birth to death, sows death in your life. Not peace. Not every, you know, every time I'm like, hey, everybody, you ready? How, how many want peace? And everybody's like, ooh, 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 like Horshack, remember Horshack? Oh, 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 Mr. Carter, right? I want, I want peace. Then what are you doing? Why do you keep sowing death in your life then? Because death is literally the exact opposite of peace. There's no peace in death. You're running away from the source of peace. Jesus Christ said, my peace I give to you. But what if you turn your back on it? <clears throat> You're running away from it. So on Thursday, be set free from the search for things that lead to death, the money, the relationships, the possessions, the illegitimate sex. They all lead to situations of death. John 10.10. 10. Imagine that. So after I'm on my 
recline are reading John 10 and life and death and sin and death are popping out, popping out. Then I go to my computer in my home office and I read the notes and I'm like, no way. John 10, 10. There it is. You think the Spirit's trying to say something? You ask me how a, a pastor's led? This is how he's led. When stuff like this happens, it's so obvious what he's trying to say. It's so obvious what he wants me to teach you. So let's grab a little context first and pick up where we left off in John 10 at the start of class. Go to John 10, 6. John 10, 6. We were just here at the start of class. John 10, 6, with this phrase that we found encouraging, hopefully we should, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which had, he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and I will go in and out, and, excuse me, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's the one who wants, that's sin. Sin is like that. Sin can be considered a thief in a way. And any circumstance in your life that sows sin, that tempts you to sin, that's a thief in your life. It doesn't have to be a person. It can be a circumstance, a situation. That situation can be a thief. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the exact verse that popped out at me over my coffee, having not even reviewed Thursday's lesson yet at the time. And lo and behold, this same verse was a key point in Thursday's lesson. And all I could think was God is so amazing and so encouraging. Up here on the board, perspective on life, it's, when we pursue the Lord Himself first, that He can bless us with truly good things. And His joy is for real, leading to life and life more abundantly. John 10.10. That was literally in Thursday's lesson. Again, what does John 10.10 say? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let me give you the amplified classic on that. Verse 10 up here in the board. The thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. What a magnificent illustration. Till it overflows. And then Jesus goes on to explain what happens to sheep who are led astray by false shepherds. And in context here, he's talking about the Pharisees. But the principles still apply for all of us. Look at verse 11, John 10, 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, and the hired hands in view here could be the Pharisees who were in it for the money even. A lot of people don't realize that. They were wealthy. They made a lot of money off the sort of the circuit, if you would, merchandising the temple and such and religious practices. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Why not? Because he's not an actual shepherd. He's not an actual shepherd. Real, look, false shepherds don't care about you. They just don't. They're in it for themselves. And usually, just usually, it's for money. Because that's, the merchant, that's how we merchandise in today's day and age. It's about money or power or prestige or any admixture of those three things. And so when tough times hit, they, scat, they scatter. When the wolves come in, they scatter. They're not concerned about the things that I opened up class with. They're not concerned with the attacks from without on your souls. Why? Because they're in it for themselves. And if the attacks ever get too great, they leave you hanging. So in other words, I'll just say this even today on John 10, 11 through 13. Be careful who you follow, beginning with the shepherds, for not all are from God. A true shepherd's heart is forever protective over his sheep. How do I know that? Scripture. How do I know it personally? Experience. That's a fact. A true shepherd's heart is forever protective over his sheep. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the false shepherds, the counterfeits. So these are the things that Jesus taught his apostles, as we'll continue to see. For they are ones, the ones who took his message out to the early church. So just reflect on this for a moment. The message from the Spirit as of late, from this pulpit, and it was amplified with our, let's call them our familiarity lessons, is to remember the precious words of Peter up here on the board. John 6.68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Who, where are we going to go? Where are you going to go? We noted a parallel passage on Thursday worth repeating. Go to Psalm 73, 23. Psalm 73, 23. Those words are like glue. They should be glued to your souls. Where else or to whom shall we go? I mean, how? Anyways, Psalm 73, 23. Nevertheless, 73, 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are from him or those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, 
that I may tell of all your works. I was thinking about that. Do you know what kind of thinking this produces in a person? That kind of thinking, like the psalmist wrote there in 70, uh, Psalm 73. Do you know what kind of thinking this produces in a person? Someone who's that resolute. Someone who has that kind of faith. One word. Conviction. Conviction. And I was thinking about this. I would say, in context even, um, one of the most attractive things about Jesus Christ, or Paul, or Peter, or any of the apostles, would have been this very thing. Conviction. Isn't that what we seek in our leaders, especially in the church? You bet. In other words, what good is a shepherd without conviction? Seriously, what good is a shepherd without conviction? How long is that person going to stick around when the wolves show up? And I'm not talking about content even, though that is critically important too, of course. I'm just talking about plain old conviction. We might say this, that conviction is fruit of faith. In other words, what gives anyone, shepherds aside, what gives anyone conviction? Another one-word answer, faith. With that said, it doesn't always mean that a person in possession of said conviction is even 100% correct in their doctrines. Except for Jesus, of course, he was. But no shepherd in the history of mankind other than Jesus was ever 100% on everything. As we've been noting, the apostles were confused about a lot of things. Kind of creepy when you think about it, right? Jesus is about to leave... And he's leaving the, his entire ministry to the early church, to guys who are still saying, we don't understand. I wonder which one of us is the greatest, though. And then it comes to us, generations upon generations later. And then it comes to us. So as we've been noting, the apostles were confused about a lot of things. But, ready, and here's the point of, encouragement, but their conviction, their faith in Jesus never wavered. Where else are we going to go? If you say that in your soul, and you know that to be true, and that is the only answer that you can arrive at, even when you don't know where else, what to do, where to go, who to talk to, what to do in this circumstance you're in. If, if the answer is anything but, where else am I going to go? then I would suggest you go all the way back to your saving faith. Because if you think you have other options, you have another problem potentially that I'm very concerned about, that I've been teaching on for almost two years now. Unabashedly, unapologetically, nor should I be. 
If you don't look in the mirror and say, where else am I going to go? And I'm not talking about where else am I going to go but North Christian Church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where else are you going to go than to Jesus Christ. Even in your times of confusion, which God ordained, by the way, even after you fall flat on your face for the 150th time, because you are such a royal jackass. And I say it with passion because I'm thinking about myself right now. You get it? Where else are you going to go? In your state of confusion, in your period of malcontent or anxiety or worry, where else are you going to go? And if the answer is not Jesus, I'm telling you, you need to look, you need to read 2 Corinthians 13, 5 when you go home. Immediately. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, lest you fail the test. Where else are you going to go? So, you know, they were confused. They didn't know everything. Sound familiar? They didn't know everything, but they had conviction in Jesus Christ. Amen? They had conviction in the person of Jesus Christ. They knew who he was. That's why he chose them. Not because they were exceptional. Not because any of you were exceptional. Yet he chose you too. For while you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Huh. Their conviction, their faith in Jesus never wavered. And in context, Jesus, check this out. Just consider the context here. Jesus sent them out knowing full well that their faith was not perfected. Remember, you would say, geez, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, you just had this much faith. Why can't we cast out the demons? Because you lack faith. Not in me, in other things. So the context is, since we're under the same Great Commission, the context is that he sent them out full well knowing that their faith was not perfected. So if that's you, if you're waiting until your faith is perfected before you go try to evangelize anybody, um, you're missing the point. However, their faith in Him was perfected, even if they didn't realize it all the time. This is one of the recurring themes the Spirit's been highlighting from this pulpit since the Gospel Reload, if you want to call it that. That is to say that if you are truly saved you will no longer be confused about your relationship with Christ and to the Father through His Son. That's one thing you will have conviction on. Why? Because Scripture tells us these things the Spirit will surely convict us of. That's why. And oh, by the way, what's the root word of conviction? Convict. In other words, if you're saved... You'll have the conviction in Christ because the Spirit of Christ will convict you. Do you get it? You have conviction because He convicts you. Conviction. This is what we've seen with the apostles. And in all fairness, anyone we've ever met who's true believers, who's a true believer in Jesus Christ, any one of us may say to ourselves this here on the board, Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter's words epitomized the one thing that separated the apostles from the rest of Jesus' quote, disciples, some of which weren't yet saved. Allah John 6.64, 1 John 2.19, 1 
Humility. Submission, surrender are fruit of humility, the essence of God's grace in salvation. As we know from the passage in John 6, Jesus tested the faith of his apostles so that they could understand it better. So that they could understand it better. Maybe your faith needs to be tested. Maybe it's been tested already this morning from the pulpit. I don't know. But we know that Jesus tested their faith. Are you going to leave too? That's what preceded, Lord, to whom, where are we going to go? Whom shall we go? He pushed them back a little bit. How about you? He wanted them to see it hold up under scrutiny. As should all of you. He wanted them to see their faith hold up under scrutiny, even from the Savior himself. Jesus Christ should be able to come down right now and, and stand literally in your face right here and ask you the same question and push you back a little bit. He wanted them to see it hold up under scrutiny as should all of you. Hence Paul's admonition. I just alluded to this earlier. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? This test that Paul refers to here is the same one that Jesus put the apostles to in John 6. And I hope you see it. Are you going to leave me too? Why don't you examine your own faith? Because maybe it's just like theirs. I mean, he knew better, but he wanted them to see it. Do you understand? It's the same exercise we've been going through for like a year and a half. How dare that bald guy question my faith in Jesus Christ? Well, maybe just maybe the Holy Spirit's smarter than you. He's saying, good, I want you to see that it's going to stand up under scrutiny. I'm going to use a jackass like the bald guy to make you mad. I'm going to use him to, to question you and keep on questioning. Stop asking me this. I'm doing my job. This is between you and the Lord. If you've got problems on that front, I'm doing you a favor. So this test, I mean, this is a good thing. I don't know what the deal is. I think today's churches nowadays, everybody's just so stinking concerned about filling seats and, and, and numbers and everything else, and they're willing to throw everything out to appease these masses of people and literally almost lie to them and not challenge them. Show me in the Bible where it says don't challenge people regarding their salvation when Jesus Christ did it right there in front of us, did he not? With the apostles who were indeed saved. And I'm assuming many people that read that in the church at Corinth were saved. Great! However, there's a fear of unbelief, isn't there? You see, an arrogant person is deeply afraid of knowing the truth about their unbelief. So they create lots of diversions around themselves to avoid standing up to the test of faith. Hebrews 10.39 See, there's a real fear there. An arrogant person is deeply afraid of knowing the truth about their unbelief. 
So they create lots of diversions around themselves to avoid standing up to the test of faith. Go to Hebrews 10.39. <clears throat> See, a humble person is never going to have a problem with a true shepherd, me, challenging any part of their faith. It's, I'm not challenging it as if I know better. I'm challenging it because he's telling me to challenge it. I don't know what your situation is in any sense. I mean, I have my idea in a general sense as a congregation, but that's really as far as it goes. I mean, you could just as easily lie to my face, and I would just say, okay. It's not the point. It's not the point. But an arrogant person is the one who stumbles. An arrogant person is the same one who's shooting venom at me right now. Why? Because they don't actually want to know the truth. Hebrews 10.39, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. Apostates are in view. But those who have faith, conviction, to the preserving of the soul. Look, if Jesus Christ, again, if Jesus Christ was to stand in front of you, there's going to be a certain healthy fear there. Amen? But you should not shrink away. You wouldn't shrink away if he challenged you. You'd say, where else am I going to go? <laughs> where else am I going to go? You can push me all you want. You can test my faith all you want, Lord. But I'm not going anywhere. I'm like the tin cans behind the just married car. Remember that? I'm that. I know I'm making a lot of noise back here. But I'm not going anywhere. I'm yours. Right? And then he'd probably hug you. He'd say, good. I wanted you to see that. The challenge presented by the Lord Jesus Christ proves the following up here on the board. Jesus taught his disciples to have their own convictions. What do you think he does through true shepherds? True ones. Ones that love you. Ones that look after you. Ones that watch over your souls. What do you think he does? I don't want you to have my convictions. That's what a jackass false prophet does. Have mine so I can manipulate you. Don't even read your Bibles. You're, you're too stupid. Just take them from me. Take my doctrines. Let me jam them down your throat. What kind of person does that? Not a true shepherd. Jesus taught his disciples to have their own convictions. He then gave them his spirit to teach Encourage and empower this. Don't ever underestimate the power of the Spirit. We haven't spent a lot of time on Him lately, but I'm assuming it's coming up at some point because I think a lot of people forget about Him, which is ridiculous, but it happens. He then gave them His Spirit to teach, encourage, and empower this. We all have the Word of and the Spirit of Christ by grace. Here's where we ended a couple of Sundays ago. I mean, this is all, remember the, the message title, it's by grace they have been prepared. And we find this very encouraging, very encouraging for all the above reasons. 
He had to send them out because he was leaving them. So he called them. We looked at that. Trained them up. Taught them academically. And gave them on-the-job training. Said, if anyone here knows that you're not prepared fully yet, it's me. But I still want you to go out there and fail miserably. So that I can show you so that, can, so that you can see your own faith or lack thereof. Sound like you? Sound like some of you? Right? Some of you are like, but, okay, wait a minute, mister. Okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. You, so you're leading us, right? So you tell me to go out in the field there and do this stuff, and then I go get stung by a bee. Or I fall down. You go, in one sense, you're saying I should step out on faith. In the next sense, you tell me I'm going to fail. I know. So step out on faith and then go fail. Sounds good to me. It's how he trains this guy. It's how he trains anybody that grows up in grace and truth. If you're waiting for the day where you're perfected in time, you're going to be waiting until you died or are raptured. And by then you have missed your opportunity to do anything towards the Great Commission. And then Jesus sent him out. So why all this training by grace? Why are the apostles so encouraging 2,000 years later? Up here on the board. The great work for any believer is to spread the gospel. We all need to be literally changed by grace through faith in order to accomplish this good work. Jesus has left his precious salvation ministry to his sheep to carry on. And we know, <laughs> we know who he first left it to. These guys who said, I don't understand. I think you just said something unbelievably magnificent, but I don't get it. That parable you just said to us, Jesus, I get the sense that it was profound. It went right over my head. How's that encouraging? Because there's lots of things that are going to go way over your head. But Jesus never will. Do you get it? It's that simple. That's the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. None of us are perfect. And in that same thought, he says, go out and evangelize the world. I want to finish with one last key thought. The problem, as we'll continue to see with the apostles, is that we aren't born with the skills to do this very thing, that is, spread the gospel. We're not. We're actually not born with that skill. So think about that for a moment. You're not born with the ability or the skills to spread the gospel. I was telling someone this past week or the week before, I can't remember, trying to get them think more like a leader thinks. First, I told them what Jesus would have told them, that leaders are not born 
They are made. Leaders are not born, my friends. They are made. There are a lot of people who think they were born leaders, and the world might esteem them, but they're not leaders. Leaders are not born, they are made. Satan likes to lie about such things because that's the foundational premise of his own rebellion against God. You ready? He spreads that lie because that's the foundational premise of his own rebellion against God. So reflect briefly. If God had wanted Satan to take his place, which cannot happen, but just go with it for a second, then he would have offered him the throne. In other words, if God wanted Satan to be like the Most High, which is Isaiah 14, 14, which is what Satan said, I want to be like the Most High. Will, I will, I will, I will, five times. I will be like the Most High. If God wanted that, he would have by grace prepared and then promoted him. Right? Because God can do anything. But as we know, God never did this. He never did this. So Satan, in his arrogance, assumed that he was made already, that he was born with, if you want to call it that, to keep it real for us, leadership skills that only God possesses, and then he went on his way. He said, if God's not going to give me the leadership position I want, then I'm going to snuff them. I'm going to assume I already have what it takes, and I'm going to go on my way. So ponder folly, uh, Satan's folly this weekend, and you'll see what the Spirit's getting at here regarding godly leadership and the counterfeits that Satan promotes in keeping with his own arrogance. I've seen this in every walk of life I've been in, in the military, in industry, and also in the ministry. People seem to think that because they possess something esteemed by the world, some kind of natural ability, for example, an outgoing personality, or an ability to communicate or teach well, these people fool themselves and often others that are indeed the rightful leaders, that they are the rightful leaders in their chosen realm. They fool people. But in many cases, they are not at all. They're the hired hands. Leaders are not born, they are made by grace through faith. By grace, through faith. Many look, sound, and even act like leaders do, but they lack the constitution. They lack the constitution for the job because God never graced them with it. In fact, more specifically, they don't even have true faith in their own abilities. Because, as we've been noting, faith is a grace gift from God. And God is opposed to the arrogant, but gives grace to the humble. 
So on that point that leaders are made, not born. Man is born depraved, self-absorbed, egocentric, controlling, jealous, weak, etc., etc., etc. While he may have apparent requisite gifts such as intellect, persuasiveness, confidence, etc., without the constitution of a leader, he is merely a counterfeit. Let me read that again. Leaders are made, not born. You know how man is born? You ready? Depraved, self-absorbed, egocentric, controlling, jealous, weak. How, how willing is that person going to be to serve you? Who are they going to be serving? Themselves. While he may have apparent requisite gifts such as intellect, persuasiveness, confidence, etc., etc. You know, the things that the world likes to see in their so-called leaders. Without the, con the constitution, and I'm talking about godliness, without the constitution of a leader, he's merely a counterfeit. Satan's the perfect example. He's the, he's the pinnacle of the counterfeit leader. He could go out and be the CEO of any company in this world like this. There would be nobody that could compare to him. He could, if he felt like it, become the president of the United States, like this. He'd do anything he wanted because he's a lot smarter, better looking, more savvy, more manipulative, more everything. Whatever he wanted, whatever he wants, he is the God of this world after all. Except for the restraining ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, God himself, he gets. But he's completely unholy. And he doesn't have the constitution for the job. He's a counterfeit. And this is why I believe, and you can disagree with me, I don't really care. I believe true leaders are rare. I actually believe that. Because most of the rest, you ready? Most of the rest are too arrogant to be trained up. Most of the rest are too arrogant to be trained up. They lack the patience and the willingness to surrender that, that which comes with humility. And like Satan, instead of accepting God's grace through preparation, they run off playing pretend leader, often damaging the lives of those around them in the process. Remember, Satan took one-third of the angels with him. That's a feat. And he was and is utterly unholy. And you're not an angel. You're probably not anywhere near as smart as the angels. Thank God you have truth. Thank God, by the grace of God, you're able to resist the devil. So I was just reflecting on this, and then I'll close. The last thing Jesus wanted was a bunch of wise morons running around playing pretend leaders of the early church in his absence. That's the last thing he wanted. He wanted humility. He wanted people not to give up on him. He didn't want people to say, okay, enough said, I'm off, I'm done. 
and become the hired hand. He wanted people that fell behind him and stayed behind him. The only way that was possible was if God gave him the grace to do it, to be there. With that said, I think I'll end here, I guess. The Constitution, I need you to focus on that word. The Constitution of a leader. Man is born antagonistic towards God. A true leader must first be a true follower. Self-promoters lack the constitution for the job. The word demands testing, proof of ability, before a man ought to be ready for promotion. Arrogance never waits. Humility does. The constitution of a leader. Man is born antagonistic. You have to remember that. Man is born antagonistic toward God. This is why leaders, look, leaders are not born, they're made. You're born antagonistic to God. Nothing you want to do in your flesh is good, is godly. It's literally the antithesis. Everything's self-absorbed. Everything's for you. Even if you're a so-called minister, somewhere behind the veil, you're doing it for you. Once again, just like you've done everything else in your life for you. You're no different. You just got another veil on. That's why there's a lot of performers in ministry. I guess it's their last performance. Man is born antagonistic towards God. You have to remember that. That's how man is born. That person does not have the constitution to even lead themselves, never mind others. A true leader must first be a true follower. A follower. But you see, people think they're natural-born leaders say, I was born a leader. I don't follow. I was born a leader. That's all I know how to do. It's all I can be. That's all I do. Move out of the way. And they're convinced of it, and the world tells them that this is their lot. Oh, you're, you're born a leader. It's obvious. Look at you, Saul. You're so much taller and more handsome than everybody else. You must be our leader. Meanwhile, you got David the shepherd. Oh, home. What'd you say against God? Who's antagonistic against my God? Who dares be antagonistic against my Lord? I'll take him out. That's cool. I did it with a bear and a lion, whatever. I'll do it with this Philistine guy. I don't care if he's 12 feet tall. Where is he? Let me at him. Where did that come from? And who, who did he become? King David. Why? Humility. And what did he always want to do? What did he say? Who am I? I'm just here to follow. You're my king. Even when Saul was trying to kill him. You know, I'm just here to serve. I'm here to follow you. Look for that in a person. Seriously. That's what you call constitution. 
Man is born antagonistic towards God. A true leader must first be a true follower. If they have a problem following, then they'll never make a true leader. They don't even understand the dynamic of leadership in the first place. Why? Because it's still about them. It's always been about them. Me, me, I, me, I. Self-promoters lack the constitution for the job. And all you have to do if you're a true leader is push them a little bit and they crack like glass. Self-promoters lack the constitution for the job. The word, not Pastor Ed, not any other, pa- no, nobody. The word demands testing, proof of ability before a man ought to be ready for promotion. When I say man, I mean all of mankind. Men, women, everyone. Arrogance never waits. Humility does. I think I have to end here. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this awesome privilege to ferret out the truth in the Word of God. Thank you for your patience, your loving kindness, your faithfulness to us, even though we at times are faithless. Thank you for giving us the strength to get up when we fall down. Thank you for the opportunity to spread your good word, especially the good news about your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we never become familiar with the little things in our lives. May they even become the big ones. For as your word teaches us, everything is backwards in this world. Light is darkness, and darkness is portrayed as light, Father, by leaders that the God of this world has promoted himself. Pray, we beg, Father, that you give us the discernment to be able to tell the difference between the sheep and the wolves, the shepherds and the wolves. Special prayers go out to those that are struggling, that desire to be here with us this morning, to break bread this way, that they know that we encourage them in spirit from afar, that we love them, that we consider them brothers and sisters and mother, the unity of the faith. We pray also for those that we are yet to evangelize, Father, for you know the truth about such things and that we persevere, that we overcome, that we resist the devil, the temptations of the world, the details of life, and in our yoke with Jesus, we do his good work, sowing the seed of the gospel truth. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.